Would you take your Bibles with me and turn to the book of Galatians in chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, and I just want to thank the pastor. He's away. We miss him and uh, miss his uh, incredible study on the book of Genesis. And But away with his son Andrew there in South Carolina, and I'm sure he'll appreciate our prayers for Journey Mercies as he makes his way back here to be with the church that he loves and cares for and that you love him. This morning he has asked me if I would speak specifically and relate to the Reformation. The title of my message this morning is The Reformation Then and Now. The Reformation Then and Now. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. This is what the text says to us, and my prayer is that God would help us understand and apply to our lives. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. That's an incredible statement. Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not reject the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the merit of the law, then Christ did not need to die. When you look at this text, brothers and sisters, there are three facts that are extremely important. Fact number one, very carefully, Jesus was crucified on the cross and so was I. Number two, union with Christ transforms the way I now live. And number three, grace does not come through human merit but through the cross. Would you pray with me? Father, we bow before you today and we thank you for the privilege of opening up your word and we thank you for the joy of being in a text-centered ministry. Thank you for the songs we just sung. My heart is just thrilled as I hear these people sing about no merit of my own. So Lord, I pray that as we acknowledge your sovereignty, that today you would look upon us because we act like it. You are sovereign. And we believe it. And we predicate our lives upon it. And I pray that you would help us to understand the Reformation then and now so that we can leave this place today rejoicing in the kindnesses and the goodnesses of our great God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. At age 28, October 18, 1512, Martin Luther received his doctorate in theology at Wittenberg University. He soon was to become a professor at this very university, and during the next four years, 1513 to 1517, there is going to be a revolution of his theological thinking at this very place. In the center of town is a chapel called the Chapel at Wittenberg. It was a dilapidated wooden structure smaller than the size of our CBC chapel. Its walls were propped up on all sides because they were fallen into ruin. The old pulpit 
was made of wooden planks and stood three feet high off the platform so that Luther might preach. The French historian J. Merrill Dabene writes, quote, it was in this wretched place that the preaching of the Reformation began, end quote. In August of 1513, Luther began teaching through portions of Psalms. Then he began to expound the entire book of Romans and later Galatians. His method of teaching these New Testament books was new to the university. He taught them verse by verse through the entire book. Imagine that. At one o'clock every afternoon, Luther would teach the book for one hour. Many professors of the university would stop their day and attend Luther's lectures. Once a well-known rector by the name of Muhlenstadt heard him speak and teach and made this statement, quote, this monk will put all doctors of theology to shame. He will bring a new doctrine and reform the entire church for he builds upon the words of Christ and no one in the world can either resist this or stand against this word. It was while Luther was teaching the book of Romans, he made two quote-unquote glowing discoveries. First, his Bible was a Latin Vulgate, and he was teaching through the book of Romans, and he got to Romans chapter 9, and at that moment, Erasmus of Rotterdam finished editing the Greek New Testament. It landed into the hands of Luther. One scholar quipped, Erasmus laid the egg which Luther hatched. Second, he began to read the Gospel of Matthew, starting at the very beginning. He came to Matthew 4.17. In the Latin translation, it reads this way. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Do acts of repentance, for the kingdom of God is near. For the first time in Luther's life, he read the original text, which stated, From that time, Jesus began to preach, Repent! for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Luther wrote his best friend back at the Augustinian cloister with these words, and I quote, I venture to say they are wrong who make more of the act in Latin than the change of heart in Greek. At this crucial moment in history, the first sacrament of the church fell. As Luther read and reread the Greek text, his soul began to burst with truth, and he could not just keep this to his students. Against what Luther was learning from the sacred scriptures was a famous 63-year-old Dominican friar by the name of John Tetzel. He was traveling from town to town near Wittenberg, selling indulgences. He carried a large red cross wherever he went. He was skilled in making up stories to touch the emotions of people. He would often point to the red cross and say these words, quote, This cross has as much efficacy as the very cross of Jesus Christ. Come, and I will give you letters all properly sealed by which even the sins you intend to commit will be pardoned. I would not change my privileges for those of St. Peter in heaven, for I have saved more souls by my indulgences than the apostle by his sermon. Beware, 
for every mortal sin you commit, even after your confession and absolution, you will do penance for seven years in purgatory, end quote. Tetzel would charge for these indulgences as he decided if the buyer seemed like he or she could pay the money or for those loved ones who have died and are now in, in torment in purgatory, Tetzel shouted his famous rhyme, quote, as soon as your coin in the offer, coffer rings, your, the soul from purgatory will spring. These hurting people were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd, so said Jesus, and he could not be resisted. At this public disgrace of truth, Luther decided he could no longer be silent. On November 1st, 1517, it was to be a festival of All Saints Day at the Roman Catholic Church. It was an important day for Wittenberg. On this day, the priests would bring out from the nearby Castle Church in Wittenberg their 19,000 relics and ornaments of gold and silver and precious stones and wood. The priests claimed their collection included a piece of the burning bush Moses saw on the mountain, soot from the fiery furnace of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, milk from Mary's breast, a piece of Jesus' baby crib, and many more such odysseys that we could account. The priests made it clear that whoever made a confession to the priest on this day would receive extra indulgences from sin. Accordingly, in this great anniversary, pilgrims came to Wittenberg in crowds. So, at noon, the day before the grand festival, August 30, excuse me, October 31, 1517, among the people in the overly crowded streets, Martin Luther walked boldly to the castle church and nailed his 95 theses to the north door which was Luther's courageous act of truth, well known to us today as thesis number 32. Those who fancy themselves sure of salvation by indulgences will go to perdition along with those who teach this. But let me read for you the opening paragraph of his 95 thesis. Front page, top paragraph. Quote, out of love, and concern for the truth, and with the purpose of producing it. The following theses will be the subject of a public discussion at Wittenberg under the presidency of Reverend Father Martin Luther, Augustinian, Master of Arts in Sacred Theology, and duly appointed lecturer on these subjects in that place. He requests that whoever cannot be present personally to orally deba debate this matter will do so in absence, in writing. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Thesis number one. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he called for the entire life of the believer to be one of repentance. Thesis number two. The word repent cannot be properly understood as referring to the sacrament of penance, that is, confession and absolution as administered by the clergy. Thesis number three. Yet, its meaning is not restricted to repentance. 
in just one's heart, for such penitence is null unless it produces outward signs in various mortifications of the flesh. For Luther, and very important for the book of Galatians, sanctification, holiness, is predicated upon repentance. And repentance demands holiness. So when I look at these 95 theses that were nailed to the north door of the castle church, two facts stand out to me. Number one, the only foundation of truth is what the scriptures say. Not what you think, but what does the text say? Men and women, over and over, we have said from this pulpit, the text, the text, the text. Why do we say that? You can look at creation, and Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. But what does the text say of our New Testament? It speaks of the God of redemption, not just the God of creation. And the God of redemption is what we're all about. We would not be here if it wasn't for the God of redemption. Truth, secondly, has two results. Real truth has two results, and only two. Number one, repentance. When you come face to face with truth, there's got to be repentance. And number two, doing works worthy of repentance. In 1519, Luther edited and published his work on the book of Galatians. It had a profound effect upon him and upon the world. When I look at the book of Galatians, the book of Galatians is calling for a reformation, and the church is less than 36 months old. So when I look at these 25 paragraphs, we call the letter to Galatians. Maybe I could take you back to chapter 1. Just look back, if you would, chapter 1 of Galatians, and look at verse number 6. He writes this. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ to a different gospel which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Notice in verse 6, it's the grace of Christ, parallel to that verse 7, the gospel of Christ. They work together. These are synonymous ideas. Grace and gospel, Christ. Galatians is calling for a personal reformation among the people of the churches who had come to Christ Look, if you will, at chapter 5, near the end of his letter. Look at verse 4. You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be judged or justified by the merit of law. You have fallen from grace. Look at verse 7. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? See how significant grace and obedience to truth, what the scripture says, it's all linked. 
It's not me selecting from the text, this is what I will obey and this is what I may overlook. It is the grace of God revealed in the truth of God and my obedience to that keeps me in step with the reign of grace. This is, this is the 25 paragraphs of Galatians. This is an amazing book for us. So I'd like to call your attention back to chapter 2 and verse 20. One of the great joys I have in not being the pastor is I'm not under a time limit, right? Is that the way it works? <laughs> you can send me all the emails you want, but I won't be back next week, okay? <laughs> I, I, I'm teasing. I tell, told somebody that uh, the, the great joy is for Pastor Brent because he preaches just, he's very careful with his time frame, but he has no clock. And there's none this morning either, I just want you to know in the back. But in all seriousness, let's look. Three facts I want to give you today from the text, which I want you to be challenged today in your own personal life. We need a reformation. Our culture is going to continually get bad. Our politics is going to continually get worse. What is needed is the same thing that is laid out for us here after the first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul as he writes to those young, fledgling churches in modern-day Turkey today. And he writes to them because so quickly they are moving away from grace. There's something about grace that draws us to Christ and something about works that takes us away from Christ. We are totally dependent upon Jesus for our salvation. And the moment we get up off our knees, it's all about me and what I'm going to do. That's called independence. So the book of Galatians is written for me. And let me tell you, this is for me as much as it is for you. It's for us as a fellowship of, of believers in Christ. And this is what the Apostle Paul says. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. Jesus was crucified on a cross and so was I. I have been crucified with Christ. Paul's point is union with Christ. But we must ask a deeper question. And that's this. Was Christ crucified? Did, did Christ go to a cross? The Messiah, God? Nailed? Died? Buried? Because of a cross? Rome only crucified heinous criminals, the rapists, the murderers, the haters of humanity, the despisers of Roman law. And they put them through a threefold process. One, the preparing. They're stripped and whipped up and down. The parading. They go through the streets to their place where they are to be crucified, and there's a placard that tells everybody, this is the heinous crime, and this is what I'm going through. It put fear in the soul of every Roman. And then the actual crucifixion itself. Jesus, the Son of God, whipped, paraded, crucified. How bad do you think you have it today? I have been crucified with Christ. Why was Jesus crucified? Well, look what the text says at the end of verse 20. It says this, I live by the faith in the Son of God who, having loved me, 
gave himself up. Huper, in my behalf. <laughs> it was a substitutionary death. The soul that sins it must die. Leviticus 17. The life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar because it's the blood that makes atonement for souls. And so Paul writes here, faith in the Son of God who loved me and was my substitute for death. Just think of this, Romans 5, 7, for scarcely for a righteous man would one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrated his love to us in that while we were still friends, enemies, Christ died in behalf of us. He died for you. He was whipped and stripped for you. He was paraded for me. He was crucified for us. When I think of the deep question, Jesus on a cross, that's for murderers and rapists and haters of Roman law, people who despise other people in life. It's no wonder to me that when I see the cross of Christ for the Apostle Paul, reformation takes place when the cross of Jesus Christ is seen for what it is. The cross of Jesus Christ, listen, is God's intervention, interruption into this evil age. This evil age is under attack by the God of this age. The cross stands as an interruption. To all that evil stands for. Look back how he began in Galatians 1. Look at Galatians 1.4. This is the most amazing way in which he just pins the opening of this letter. Verse 3. Grace to you, peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, so that he might rescue us. And he might take us to heaven, or he might rescue us from hell. Is that what it says? No. It's the most amazing statement of the Apostle Paul. What's incredible to me is you don't find the word hell once in the book of Galatians. What's interesting in the book of Galatians is Paul is very concerned about the people who profess to know Jesus Christ. A reformation needs to happen. But they've only been saved 36 months. Yes, and in 36 months, they are walking away from grace. Look what grace does in verse 4. He gave himself for our sins that he might rescue us from this present evil age. Hallelujah. According to the will of God, our God and Father. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. This was no something done in secret by pagan individuals who hated righteousness. This is a plan of God from the foundation of the world. And God demonstrates his love for me, for you. Why would God love us? We do nothing but walk away from grace. We do nothing but speak evil of one another. We do nothing that is right and true and holy before a great God. We are concerned of self. 
I am concerned of self. I'm covered in pride, and I rationalize it away in sin. Chapter 2, verse 20. Why was Jesus crucified? Let no one know, no one misunderstand. He was crucified as a substitutionary atonement for every single one of us. And that's why I like Lorraine Bettner's idea that when you have the death that Jesus died, he goes into the tomb and this, this life, this infinite God rises from the dead. And as long as this resurrection is infinite, guess what? We have got to sacrifice. I've been crucified with Christ. You see, the point is Paul, with Paul, is extremely personal. In fact, if you just, in your, in your Bible sometimes, just look at verse 20 and 21 and just circle the times, I, I, me, me, I, I, eight times in two verses. This is very personal with Paul. I have been crucified with Christ. He sees himself in union with Christ on the cross. I love Millard Erickson's idea when he writes in his theology these words, union with Christ is an inclusive phrase for the whole of salvation. All other doctrines are just subparts of union with Christ. I'm in Jesus. I'm crucified with Christ. How am I crucified with Christ? At the center of the, this sentence, the SV has a sentence there. I am crucified with Christ. Go with that. This verb is what they would call a divine passive. In other words, the, the assumed subject of the verb is God. It is not that the moment Paul got saved on the Damascus Road, he went out into the back of Judas's house and he built a cross and he laid on the cross and he took a hammer and began nailing his hands into the cross. This is a divine passive. It was not done. The, the subject was not done by Paul. This is the rich theology, the rich theology that is here that we cannot overlook the action that takes place in a divine passive verb, the action is totally, completely given over to God himself. The action is God to identify every single believer. The moment you receive the gift of righteousness, Romans chapter 5, the moment you take that gift of righteousness, God identifies you with Christ. You say, how come that has to be? Because, very simple, it has to be with Christ's death because the law can't touch a dead man. I want you to turn back to a, an amazing illustration, just a couple of verses from the Holy Text. Turn back to uh, Romans chapter 7. Very quickly, please. <laughs> Romans chapter 7, look at verse, end of verse 1. The law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. Verse 2, illustration. For the married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then if her husband is living and she is joined to another man, we need this text, men and women, 
she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brothers, you also were made to die to the law through. This is so important. The body, the death, the burial of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead. See, if you're with Christ at the cross and with Christ in the tomb, guess what happens next? Lo, in the grave he laid Jesus my Savior. Waiting the coming day, Jesus my Lord. Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph or his foes. Men and women, I say to you today that we are, not, we are people who are not people of grace because we are not people who are carefully handling the text. Let's listen to the word alone. And the illustration is powerful. Verse 6, but now we have been released from the law, having died to that which we were bound. So we now serve in newness of spirit not in oldness of the letter. I look at this. Why was Jesus crucified? Yes. How am I crucified? It is the identity of God himself to identify every person a participant of Jesus' death and burial. And yes, resurrection. This is our hope. This is our joy. This is who we are as people of Christ. Fact one, Jesus was crucified on a cross. And so was I. How about you? How about you? Have you come to the place where you have received not some religion, not some act, not some baptism, but you have personally received the gift of righteousness? Chapter 5 of Romans. And by receiving that gift of righteousness, at that very moment, God identifies you in Christ so that his death, your death, his burial, your burial, his resurrection, your resurrection, and his righteousness, your righteousness. God looks at me, the one Habakkuk 113, who cannot look upon evil. God looks at me through the righteousness of Jesus Christ because I'm in union with him. You talk about freedom and joy. Listen, brothers and sisters, we need a reformation of grace because it's a reformation of truth. It's a reformation of the gospel. It's a reformation helping us to understand the reality that we have because we are in union with Christ. Fact number two, union with Christ transforms the way I now live. That's the rest of the verse. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives, get this, in me. And the life which I now live in this mortal flesh, this mortal body, I live by surrender. That's faith. I full surrender to the Son of God. The one who loved me. The one who gave himself for me. 
This, this will reform your life. Believe it or not, this would probably keep you off of Facebook and in the word singing. I know, it's hard to believe. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, the church, the evangelical church of which we are a part, has lost its focus on grace. And because we have lost our focus on grace, we can have thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people in churches today. And our society is spiritually dead. Do you think that I can go to a voting box and make it come alive? Do you think I can follow this or that and make things different? Listen, the only Solution we have is what Paul says here. Union with Christ turns you and me into a transformation project of God himself. I live in this flesh by surrender to the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There's a third fact, and it's the last verse. I, here it is, I, Paul says, do not reject, render invalid the grace of God. For if righteousness could come through merit, personal merit, law merit, then there's no need for Christ to go to a cross. <laughs> he died needlessly. So when I look at the text that's here, brothers and sisters, I want you to understand that this text is a fitting capstone. Grace is not through human merit. It's through the cross. Through the cross. Through the cross. How does he end Galatians chapter 6, verse 14? I glory in nothing except the cross of Jesus Christ. That's how he ends this particular letter. Turn over to chapter 5, real quickly. Chapter 5, verse 19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. Do we, need it? <laughs> Do we need this exposition? It's evident. The deeds of my flesh are evident. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and anything that smells like this. That's in the Greek. Things that I forewarned you. And those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Listen, if we are not people of truth, then we are people who are untruthful. You're either in truth or not. You're either telling your husband and your wife truth or you're not. You're either speaking to your kids in truth or you're not. Kids, you're either saying truth to mom and dad or you're not. Truth matters because God is truth. And we are to mirror this in our daily life. It's about truth. We are people who are great worshipers of God when we come together. I hear the songs that we sing this morning. My heart just leaps. And I thank God for this. A place we can come to Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and hear these incredibly powerful texts being sung. My heart thrills to this. Brothers and sisters, I look forward to it. 
But it's more than just emotional experience. Because that means I'm going to live out what I have sung today in my mortal flesh. Grace only comes through the human merits. And look at what it's evident. These, these are things that are evident. But let's go on. Verse 22. But the fruit of God's Spirit. Oh, man. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. There's no law against these things. Now look at verse 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Men and women, the old self, that's what happened at the cross. You still live in a mortal flesh. Mortal flesh, mortal means subject to death. We're not immortal, we're mortal. We also find in the book of Romans, it also means we're susceptible to the deceit of sin. No person here can live and not be deceived. <laughs> so we keep coming back to the text. The truth, the truth, the truth. I keep coming back to the text, the text, the text. I need this. I mean, David's 50 years old. And he's got a little problem going on that ends up in murder and a baby. So when I look at the text here, I say to you, brothers and sisters, my heart for us today is a reformation, as then, so now. One of the most prolific English authors lived about 400 years ago. His name was John Bunyan. He wrote the famous Pilgrim's Progress. He was so overwhelmed with grace, he wrote a book called Grace Abounding. Actually, it's two lines long. I won't read it, but it's long. In the preface of his book, he writes a couple of words, which is so important, I think, because he writes this from prison because he would not accept a license to preach from the government. He wanted to preach. He doesn't need a license. God has called me to preach. So he humbly and quietly and submissively put himself under the government and went to prison. And instead of hollering and yelling and screaming, I've got my rights as an Englishman, he writes grace abounding. He writes in here that his rationale for writing this story will expose his ungodliness as a pre-converted person. Bunyan recalls this, a horrible incident in his unsaved years that showed how he delighted in vileness. One day, he was standing on the street underneath the neighbor's shop window, loudly cursing and swearing, and as he writes, playing the madman. A woman flew out of the shop in rage, and she told me that I was the ungodliest fellow she's ever heard in all of her life, and I will spoil the youth of this town if they come into my company, end quote. This rebuke silenced me, since she had the reputation of being a very loose and ungodly woman. The sharp words of this immoral woman caused my heart secret shame. At this point, Bunyan's redemption story begins to take a turn. He's traveling as a tinker. He's, he sells all kinds of things in his wagon with his horse. And, 
And though through God's providence, he journeys into a nearby town of Bedford. He's selling his wares, and he just happens to hear the conversation of three or four women in the street. And they are relating to one another their personal experience of being born again, coming to the cross of Christ and being saved. Bunyan had never heard of such a thing and wrote this, I, I felt in my heart that I began to shake, terrified. As Bunyan fell under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, his conscience struggled with the dreadful thought that I'm too great a sinner to be saved. He wondered, quote, has the day of grace passed for me? Have I come too late to receive God's gift of salvation? About this time, God providentially directed his steps to a Bedford pastor, his name, John Gifford, where Bunyan began to sit under the ministry of the word, and from that time, he writes this, my soul was led, listen to these words, my soul was led from truth to truth by God. Preaching the cross of Jesus Christ opened his eyes. Grace became sweet to his soul. And after his salvation, he writes these words, and I close with these, quote, I felt love to Christ as hot as fire. We need a reformation. The only hope our church has, the only hope the evangelical world has, the only hope our nation has, the only hope our nations have is that there will be some transformed people in union with Christ. And just as three or four ladies that are unnamed are talking about Jesus, brings under conviction one of the most prolific authors of four centuries in the English language. I say to you, God can take your testimony like I could take a rock and throw it into Lake Blessing, and that rock sinks to the bottom, but the ripple effect just keeps going and going and going and going. You know why Isaiah 55 says, my word will not return to me void. I believe that. I believe it. It's not my nouns and verbs, putting them together. It's not my emotional stories. God is sovereign. And I want to act like it. I want to live like it. How about you? Would you stand with me, please, with your heads bowed and eyes closed? With our heads bowed and eyes closed, in just a moment we're going to sing. But before we sing, I can't imagine an audience this size that there are some people that need a reformation. You need that? All you have to do is follow the truth. <laughs> repent. That's what Martin Luther said, repent. And repentance is not just a one-time thing it's an ongoing experience of life just repent god i am sorry i said this i wrote this i thought this i acted this way and guess what first john 1 9 says if we confess our sins guess what he's going to do he's going to forgive it 
The only sin he will not confess is the one, or he will not forgive is the one you will not confess. Will you confess it? If God is dealing with you, just commit at this moment to him. If you're here today and your salvation is in some religious organization, some Baptist church, some Presbyterian church, some Catholic church, some synagogue, that's not truth to truth. This Baptist church can save no one. No one. Just in your heart, say to God, I'm a sinner. I see it. I ask you now, forgive me. I, I, I want to be in union with you. Father, it's not in us. It's not in me. It's all about you. And I pray that our church, as Ben prayed a little while ago before this sermon, he prayed after reading the text of Scripture, God, would you make this church full of people, full of people who understand that grace is something that is not merited but it's because of the cross. And when I think of the cross, I fall down on my face and say, you would do this for me. Forgive us for our arrogance. Forgive us for our independence. Forgive us for our hard-heartedness. Forgive us for not listening and always speaking. Forgive us for not loving Forgive us for not being gentle. Forgive us for not being good. Forgive us for our divisiveness. Forgive us for rejecting grace. And sweetly bring us back as you have promised in your word. It's in the holy and precious name of Jesus Christ, the one who loved us and gave himself for us, we pray. Amen.